Hello everyone, welcome back for a new season of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. Cold Waves 10 is the biggest show yet, taking place September 22nd through the 25th at Metro, Smart Bar, Riviera Theatre, and La Nocturne. Cold Waves is a celebration of Chicago's relationship with industrial music, the memory of a fallen brother, and a fundraiser for Darkest Before Dawn, a nonprofit providing resources and support for workers in the nightlife industry. For more information, including the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week, we are chatting with Sunday Riviera performer John Weiber. This is Portion Control.
thing that influenced us was um i was at college with a number of colleagues it's when punk was in the uk punk was really exploding so a group of us began to listen to the more um left field sort of electronic tracks at that time and then we'd sort of swap cassettes with each other you know and say yeah listen to this listen to this and in the uk a big influence on that was john peel john peel had a late show to our radio show He'd play things like uh, Mad Professor, you know, big dub stuff and all kinds of experimental music, not just electronic, you know, right across the genres, but always independent. In the end, it seemed that a nucleus of us decided to form a band off the back of the love of punk music, if you like. And at that time in the UK, there was one shop in London called Chase Music, which was in uh, off the Euston Road, and it was started to import synthesizers and these synthesizers were quite intriguing to us. We didn't want to be musicians in any way, shape or form. So we didn't really want to have keyboards or guitars or drums or any of the anything like that. We wanted we wanted if we could just to have sort of boxes, you know. Craftwork was probably a, the closest example to, a, you know, an anti-group at that time. That's how we wanted to be. And in the end, we saved up as much as we could and we bought an ARP Axe and that was our first sort of synthesizer. We knew from that moment that electronics was going to allow the level of creativity and innovation that we seeked. But we only started making sort of really home cassettes and indie bleeps and bloops. And it was really fairly unlistable, apart from to our small colleague and friends that we passed off to. So tell me how the, the punk mindset leads into making things electronically. Punk was, in the UK at least, I'm not sure if America's the same, but in the UK, punk was really an attitude which was anti the music industry. It said, if you think you can play something, get up and do it. You know, there was no rules. It was based around guitar music, I accept that. But post-punk became, bands like Wire and the pop group became much more influential and they started to incorporate you know, other types of other styles of music and everything. But what punk really did, it was gave a, it gave a real roots type of music. In other words, it was, um, it, was re- it was structured very simple. It was structured the same as the 60s music that come before it. So it's verses, choruses, even middle eights, you know, intros, outros, you know, the, the structures were. So we wanted our electronic music to be structured like that because quite quickly in the UK, Industrial electronics borrowed more, I would say, from hippies that have come before, which punk was the opposite too. 
I know it's a, it's a hard thing to, to describe, but, you know, punk was anti-music industry, anti-hippie, very much anti the um, prog rock that, that had really been before it. And punk just said, you know, make the stuff yourself, draw the covers yourself, release a few hundred copies, just get on with it. And that really was a big influence to us. Tell me a little bit more about the Peel sessions. I mean, John Peel always had his favourites. So he used to love the fall and he used to love things like the undertones. But you'd get like an undertones record followed by um, something like Vivian Stanshaw, you know, from the Bonzo Dog Doodah bands doing a sort of um, poetry narration. And then you might get Nurse with Wound. And then you might get, you know, a track by The Fall. And then you might get something by Tapazuki, some really heavy dub play and so on. My kind of generation of kids that are interested in music, you know, I live in sort of middle England and to be able to listen to John Peel and these influences was really, really important. Eventually, when we first released our records, John Peel would play them. There was no, no effort on our part to send them to him. He just would pick up on this stuff, as was his want, um, and he played us. And after that, after he played us for a while, then we got asked to do a session and we went to Maidavale Studios to do a session. But that was quite interesting at the time because we had to, we had, you had to be, a, you had to belong to the Musicians Union in the UK at the time. So we got these forms sent and it said, what do you play? And we put nothing because we didn't, we couldn't play any musical instruments. And, and they came back and said, we can't join the Musicians Union, you know. And we said, okay, we play, um, you know, we play electronic boxes or whatever. And they said, is that keyboards? And in the end, we just said, yeah, 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 it's keyboards, you know. So, so we had to fill all these things in um, to join the Musicians Union. But quite seriously, our, our big thing was sequencing, definitely sequencing drum machines and stuff that made noises. It was never keyboards or notes, never interested in it and to this day. You know, you won't see us with a keyboard. So John Peel was, was a big factor. Um, and he, we did a couple of sessions for John Peel. And, yeah, it, it was good because he gave you a chance to re-record your material at Maidaville, which is like a top-class studio in London, on, you know, on the outskirts of London. It was fantastic for us to go and do that. So as you mentioned, you know, this is going on through the 80s. And then, you know, you, you put out your stuff you know yourself through cassette and then you then you get picked up and you're you have your other earlier albums coming out and then it, it seems like the the band's the end of its first phase happens around 87 at that point did you feel like your creativity had run, had run its course was it something else what, what what led to the the first hiatus we landed up signing to tom watkins massive management the name portion control became hard for us to sort of untangle at the time from the that position after we signed to Tom on his management deal, it also everything sort of went a bit wrong for us. You know, we didn't feel comfortable. We was we were starting to be, you know, influenced by the music industry more than we wanted to be or needed to be um, or felt comfortable with. So in the end, we landed up leaving Tom Watkins and the, and the management deal. And at that point, the name was kind of, you know, legally the name sort of still belonged to them to a degree, and there was some arguments about that. Um, no arguments, but you know, it wasn't so easy just to go back to being probably dry as we were. Um, so we just we just said, you know, we'd stop, we'd just stop and we'd have a break from it. So we had um we had quite a long break. And we did do some stuff with Solar Enemy, but we sort of realized that in our heart of hearts we were Porsche control, you know. So and like any band will tell you, especially now, you know, you can't just change the name of a band and keep all of your history and your followers with you, you know. 
we had a long break, but we don't live near each other. Dean, who's the vocalist, lives in, well, now, at the moment, is in the north of England, and I'm in the south of England. So we don't meet at all, apart from when we go and play live. So if we're going to talk to each other, it's on the telephone, or we send material to and from each other, you know, or, or, or you know, communicate electronically. So you mentioned uh, Solar Enemy, and then it looks like uh, in the early 2000s, you decided to, to bring the band back proper. So tell me about d- deciding that, that that was the right time and, and how it was different or how it was the same than, than the first iteration of the band. I didn't know if Dean at the time would be interested in, in this um, proposition. And we had another friend, um, Ian Hicks, who was doing Mordant music, who had always been a, a kind of friend of ours and a fan, not say a fan of ours, he'd always appreciated Porsche Control. But he was doing his own stuff on Mordant music. I sort of said to him, would he be interested? Um, and he, he and Ian was interested and um, Dean said, yeah, let's, let's look at it. So we decided it's quite good because we decided to meet in London. There was a welcome exhibition at the British Museum. And we said we'd meet on the steps of the British Museum. So we hadn't seen each other for a few years. And we all just sort of went to this sort of meeting. The proposal was that we would reform Porsche Control, but we wouldn't buy any hardware at all. We just It would be laptop only, you know, as simple as possible. We'd record the tracks in you know, different locations and it would just be kept in one box kind of thing. When we're at the British Museum, as I say, there was a welcome exhibition. So this is like um, Welcome Trust is, I don't know if you know it, but it's, um, I think it's a UK kind of charity that collects um, medical oddities and, and instruments and has things like heads in jars and, you know, body parts in, in jars and stuff. And it was brilliant. So when we were at, um, when we were at the British Museum, that's when we said the first release would be Welcome with a double L. Um, we like the misspelling of the word anyway. Um, so, yeah, so we said, right, this is it. So Welcome is was kind of started on those steps at the British Museum in 2004. But the one thing we wanted it to be, sorry, the one thing we wanted it to be was a double CD, as long as two 70-minute CDs, so as long as possible, quite experimental. And I had been working on a few tracks prior to that, so some of that material got incorporated into it. And Dean had his own ideas that he bought. So it actually came together quite quickly. That was the second incarnation. And when we all met, we all knew that we wanted to, you know, we really, we did want to do it. We'd missed doing it um, for whatever reason.
So let's talk about some of your latest stuff. So it, it seems like most recently you've been putting out these CDPs, which it looks like it's easier to get music out in smaller chunks than, you know, wait for something to accumulate. You've hit a nail on the head there because we decided that the idea of doing a, a CD in inverted commas, you know, puts a lot of pressure on a, on a group, you know, because you, you're worried that it's going to be as good as the one before. Oh, well, yeah, we've never worried about that. I'm just saying in theory, you worry about it being as good as the one before. And there's a lot of pressure. And let's say it's 10 songs predictably, you know. So that, that whole thing, we just felt, why are we worrying about that anymore, you know? We used to do CDs and we'd say, right, if this was vinyl, these would be on the A side, these would be on the B side, you know. So we just said, right, let's forget all that nonsense. Let's, let's just release a series of EPs. And the other thing which aided us was by releasing EPs, it meant that we could we could write more freely. And particularly on seed three, because we did, we did um, Head Buried, which was in the album, then seed one, then seed two. And then finally for seed three, we decided to do nine tracks, which were two minutes long at maximum. So Dean had two minutes, I had two minutes. We had to get our, our material, you know, the, the tracks. Um, finished in that time period but that was brilliant because it meant you could do stuff much more you know much more sort of experimental much you know much more sort of left field because it just encouraged it but we put as much effort into the two minute tracks as to be honest as we would have done if it had been a four or five minute track so it was quite a lot of work but the songs were quite free you know more freely written which i think we have appreciated and again, the time of things is fairly irrelevant, isn't it? No, although it was seed free, um, was a third EP. Really, it was virtually a CD anyway, because we just start. You know, we just collected more stuff, and I just said to do well, that's, that's it. Just you know, we'll just include it all. And then at the very end of seed um, of the EP, we we sequenced the short tracks all into one longer track because I used to walk around listening to it on my headphones you know and I, I got a bit frustrated with the two minute tracks just keep ending you know so we in the end we threaded them all together to make that um i think it's called long form so it's just all of the short tracks kind of intermixed which makes it a bit easier you know but if you never play it then that's fine but if you want it as a you know 12 minute track then it's there i noticed in in headberries the last song is called cock who is coming up with the song title names that would be either of us. As a musician, it's really difficult because we always have a working title and then we have an actual title and we get muddled up between the working title and the, and the uh, real title. So at some point, I'll say to Dean, I've got this instrumental, it's called um, Cock, and he'll say, is that the one that was called? <laughs> so, and we sort of, we're daft enough in our own working way, not really to just to sort of dismiss the other and just say, yeah, yeah, you know. So we landed up getting a little bit of a muddle, but I think Cock possibly was a working title, but we had a track called um, Bell End in the old days and that kind of stayed. Yeah. I don't know, I think with I think with us there's there's an amount of in jokes between Dean and I with track titles and stuff. And particularly going back to the step forward days, there'd be certain novels we'd read and we the characters would appear in them. So Hard for people necessarily to disseminate, but there was lots of, and lots of the tape voices have been people at work that we've liked, you know, crazy people and situations. So, and the titles, I guess, are sometimes meant to be not necessarily difficult, but not necessarily easy either, are they? You know, 
mean, that track's not particularly easy. What I've noticed now, and again, this is this is as technology changes. My kids, when they want to listen to a song, they'll say, Alexa, play the song. There are some songs where it's easy to know the name of the song because it's usually in the chorus. But there's a, a few songs they like where they don't know the name of the song. And they'll guess it based on whatever lyrics they know. And, and sometimes the algorithm is smart enough to map those lyrics to the right song. But sometimes it's you know some completely other random song. It's funny to some degree how even coming up with a title can impact whether somebody is able to easily play a song or not, depending on how they're listening to it. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a Wire song, and I can't for life me think of the name of it, but I can't quite pronounce it. I don't know why, but I just can't. So every time I ask Spotify to play it, I get another song, you know, and it's really frustrating, you know. Like. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There's, there's a Dillinger Escape Plan song that my daughter likes, and the song is called um, Unretrified, which is not a, a real word, and Alexa can't understand that. The only way I can get her to play the song is to tell her to play the album, and then you have to skip eight songs into it. Yeah, these are, these are you know, 2022 problems now. Yeah, exactly. So, mate, you give me an idea now. I think for our next EP, I'll investigate, you know, the hardest words for, for um, Alexa or whatever. Let's talk about your live performances, because for Cold Waves this year, we're, we're all going to see you, you know, at the Riviera, along with this Reb and Front 242. I think that, you know, that's going to be an amazing show. And, you know, you guys don't seem to, to do a lot of live performances. Uh, are, are you selective about that is it just schedule wise is it's not something that that you want to do so much we really it's only by invitation um so if we're invited to play we'll play um so we've never really done um a tour because that would be too much music industry for us anyway <laughs> um <laughs> and we don't rely on income from our music anyway so with heaven forbid we'd, that would be awful so we just do it on invitation. So if we're invited, we'll do it. And I know we've been invited. Um, Jason's invited us a couple of, once or twice previously to come to the States. And even in our initial in, incarnation, initially back in the um, late 80s, we were, we were invited to come, come across. But we've never really quite managed to sort of fit it in between work. And the other thing is you've got, it's got to be, obviously, for us to pay for work permits, any English band or any European band coming out, it's, it's got to be a certain commitment to to cover the cost and so on you know um on this occasion we've done it because we have we have we haven't played in the states before but we do know that we have support in the states i know the states is a big place to say you've got support isn't it but america canada have always been very influential and obviously important territories for our type of music you know and i'm going back to the you know days when we'd have sort of skinny puppy contact us and frontline assembly and you know all this kind of stuff so we're really looking forward to coming out. That's crazy. I did not even know that you'd never played the US before. Uh, now that, that that's even more exciting for everyone now. Yeah, exactly. And what we're currently working on is we've got, um, obviously we've got the newer material like the seed and head buried stuff, which we know what works live because we've tried that through, through Europe and stuff. And then we've got some older tracks, which we recognize people do want to hear although we're, we're less keen on doing older material because we we portrait have always been about pushing newer material 
but nevertheless there's there's a few sort of tracks from other eps and then we've reworked some older tracks but with better technology so there's an older track called refugee but we've reworked it and it sounds really sort of tight and, and aggressive now because obviously the technology is so much better so you can recognize it and obviously the, the lyrics are the, and, the, and the vocals the same delivery um so yeah i think cheer to bits will probably be in the set because that's always good probably brain scraper to death dive and then there'll be a load of noise from other bits and pieces and little incidental pieces and then most importantly for portion control as important as the audio will be the visuals i mean the visuals are treated exactly the same as the audio so there's small cut-ups highly distressed distorted they kind of they're meant to add to the, to the overall tone of the track and to give you an idea of what we're pushing at. Oh, yeah. 
On this episode, you heard Possession, Still, and Claw and Scrape. Portion Control can be found at portion-control.net. Our opening music is Euthanasia by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show through Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Rare DM. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Gold Waves, Jamie Duffy. Here is Rick Leiter sharing one of his memories. The last time I saw him, I went to the movies with him to see uh, Prometheus. He posted something on Facebook. He's like, hey, I'm going to see this movie. Anybody want to go? You know, shoot me a message. So I texted him. And at the time, I, he didn't know my number. So he was like, who is this? I'm like, it's Rick, you know. <laughs> you know, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm interested. I'll go. You know, and I like going with people I know to because it's kind of like going to a show. I want to go with my friends and then we can talk about it stuff, you know. What did he think of Prometheus? Uh, he said he didn't like it. <laughs>